Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really interesting founder. You know, we're going to be learning about coming to the U.S., about building, about scaling, about financing, about exiting, all the good stuff that we like to hear. So without waiting any longer, let's welcome our guest today, Jay Chekawat. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Alejandro. So originally born in India. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there and then also being in a family that is involved with the military? Yes, I was born in uh, the city of Jaipur in northwest India. It's a desert town and born into a, 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 a military family. So my father was in the Navy. So we moved around a lot most of the most of the time on the coastlines of India. But as a child, also lived in the former Soviet Union. My father was a submarine uh, officer then, and I think at the age of about four or five, uh, we lived in Moscow and then Vladivostok. Uh, and then uh, upon coming back to India, uh, when I was 14, my father was posted to the Naval War College in the United States, and uh, that got me put into boarding school in New Delhi, a place called the Delhi Public School, which is really sort of the last time I lived at home. So, uh, so it's it, it was good. I, I have only the best memories of growing up. And obviously, you know, like moving around, making new friends, the unknown, the uncertainty. How do you think that, uh, you know, made who you are today? Well, I, you know, upon reflection, I think it probably had quite a big impact because when it's happening at the moment, it's quite disruptive. You know, you're young, you made all these friends, and then you have to go to this new place, and you're not easily welcomed, etc. But I think I learned to become quite independent and uh, quite resilient and probably developed a pretty rich inner life uh, with lots of reading and a love for sports, actually, uh, and eventually individual sports, which, you know, we can figure out what that means. But I was very much drawn to racket sports, in particular squash, uh, tennis, racquetball, that sort of thing. So in your case, you know, you ended up, you know, going to school and 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 that, you know, one thing led to the next and you ended up working at this company called Tata. And uh, as a result of that, you land all of a sudden in the U.S. So how was that transition like and, and how shocking it was to all of a sudden be in the land of opportunity? Well, you, you know, at the time it was happening, I didn't know any of these things. So when I finished college at the age of 22, the only job offer that I had was from the Philips radio company. And it was to sell radios in the interiors villages of uh, of India. That's about all I had. And, you know, my father, ever the optimist, uh, said something to the effect that, well, you'll at least get to know your country. Uh, and uh, so I was within days of accepting that offer when just by complete chance ran into a friend who was going to do an interview at this new company uh, called Tata Burroughs. It was a joint venture between the Tata company and the Burroughs Computer Corporation. I showed up there. One thing led to another. I got an offer as a as a computer programmer. It was COBOL back in those days. And we knew very little about computers other than some classes that we took in college that involved working on a mainframe uh, where the pr active programming was really 
you know, putting holes in punch cards and then stacking them and handing them to a computer operator who sat behind this glass cage uh, in an air-conditioned room. And that was my experience with computers. Uh, but uh, you know, lo and behold, a few months after joining, I find myself being uh, shipped to Atlanta, Georgia, where I showed up uh, you know, in the mid-80s with two or three other people. So uh, it was a complete adventure. I had no idea what to expect. Uh, you know, my, the first time I heard I was going to Georgia, I thought it was Soviet Georgia, which is the only one I knew back then. And uh, I think people corrected me and said, no, we think you're going to Atlanta, Georgia, not, not, not Soviet Georgia. Now, now, in this case for you, I mean, you, you enter this really nice path of, you know, the corporate world in the U.S., you know, having the, um, the, the nine to five, um, the land of opportunity, as we were saying, you know, earlier. But after a few years, you know, uh, Tata, then you did Sintel, then you realize that it's time to shift gears and you do your MBA program. What, why did you decide it was the right time to do an MBA at that point at Kellogg? You know, I stayed... Uh in the IT services business with Sintel for five years. And it was a wonderful experience because the founders, a husband and wife team that I'm very close to to this day, uh, had really pioneered the business of uh, uh, IT services, the offshore business, et cetera, and built a very substantial firm over the course of you know a couple of decades. I was there relatively early for about five years. I learned a lot. Uh, it, what it also taught me is what I don't know. So with the complete support of uh, of my then boss, his name was Bharat Desai, uh, I ended up applying to business school and uh, got into a few of them. And I chose Northwestern here in Chicago, which is the Kellogg School of Business. Uh, so that was really the reason, you know, to expand on uh, my then relatively rudimentary experiences. You know, most of them involved, uh, you know, one sector heavy on sales, heavy on learning about entrepreneurship. Uh, but in hindsight, I can just say unequivocally that it was an excellent move. Yeah, no kidding. And in your case, you know, a career shift too, because then you went into consulting, you know, obviously solving problems to then solving your own problem with your first company. So how were, how was that transition of events, you know, going from graduating to now, you know, you are at McKinsey, where you're learning how to grab one big problem, divide it up into small little problems and tackling one after the other to then, hey, I think I, I, got, I have what it takes, you know, to, to go at it and, and start something on my own. You know, the thing about joining McKinsey, which was completely, you know, my dream at that stage, uh, and it was, it was difficult to get into. They were, they were quite selective. It was hard to even get an interview. So I think I got lucky on several fronts there. McKinsey back then was often referred to as getting a PhD in business, you know, metaphorically speaking. And I would say for, I stayed there for just under three years, uh, including a job as a, as a summer associate. So it was a, it was a marvelous experience. We worked in these intense situations and really got to take the MBA, the, you know, the learnings from an MBA and put it to some sort of practical use. But, you know, three, after three years went by, the bug of, entrepreneurship that I had that had been planted in me when I worked uh, in Michigan with Sintel, that had started to surface again because I, I really wanted to get my hands dirty once again with operations. Uh, and you know, consulting at the end of the day, if you've been in operations, it's, it feels incomplete. 
And there was there, there were several moments on different studies where I felt I would have liked to stay and continue to see this work through and you know build it out and run PLs and build a sales force and you know bring on a team and that sort of thing. And that's what eventually led me to decide that uh, it was time to leave. But I'll always credit McKinsey with just giving me the frameworks and the and the sense of confidence uh, to go you know break down these big problems that you see if you leap off and try to start a company. It's, it can seem overwhelming, but, but the stint at McKinsey gave me the confidence to feel like I could tackle those. So then let's talk about that uh, confidence because then, you know, Quinox, you know, is what comes really, you know, uh, the light of the day here. You know, obviously the most immediate step to building your biggest success uh, story, which we're going to get just in a little bit, but how do you get into Quinox? Well, Quinox, which was actually originally IT20, so the term Quinox, it's a merger of IT20 and another small firm that uh, a friend of mine had started. It was, uh, you know, frankly, it was the only type of business that I really knew, which was IT services. And, uh, uh, it, you know, it offered an opportunity to do on a small scale what I had done back at Centel. So I, I jumped into that. But I learned a couple of things very quickly that I had changed you know, myself. And, and uh, what I really wanted to do is build product and not be in the services space. And so, you know, within a year of starting that, uh, I handed that off to uh, the, a couple of friends of mine that continued to run it. And then I started Field Glass, which I have to say was uh, the probably the fifth company in that space to begin. But but one thing one thing really quickly there, I mean, Quinox is still up and running today and doing pretty well, if I understand right. Yes, that is correct. How many employees that the, does the company have? You know, I don't know anymore because I'm not involved. I yeah. was on board there for a very long time, but the, yes, the firm has done well. I mean, we're talking about thousands of employees, if I understand that right. Uh, no, I don't think it's quite that many, but it's uh, it is uh, it should be fairly substantial. It's probably you know getting it's probably close to a thousand, but I'm not. I mean that's impressive. Yeah. So I guess uh, you know a, a company that would end up being so successful. I mean, looking back, I mean, do you think that was premature or 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 what 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 did you learn from you know turning over a a company that would be so successful? <laughs> Uh, no, it wasn't premature at all, actually, because what, what I did is uh, the, the couple of friends that were running that, we, I gave them some equity in Field Glass, and in exchange, I kept some equity in Quinox. And so it was all done on the basis that, you know, back then, these things are very small. And the theory was, look, the chances of, you know, even one of these succeeding statistically is quite remote. And so let's just set it up so if even one of them succeeds, then you know we're going to be okay. So that was the basis of it. Uh, and like I said, uh, you know my heart really lay in solving uh, a big new original problem, and that's when I started to write the business plan for Field Glass. I mean, pretty impressive stuff here, uh, Jay. So tell us about Field Glass because for you to be running a business and then you know, really understanding that there's something much bigger for you, a bigger calling, a bigger problem, you know, something that you are 
that you can't take off out of your head to the point where you're turning over, you know, the the operation that you're in and and really venturing into something new. What was that level of conviction? How did you get that level of conviction that that was the right path to take on at that given moment? You know, what I started to think is uh, rather than think about a company where I'm just, you know, doing something that thousands of other companies are doing, which is what IT services is, could I tackle a problem uh, in a space that I understand that is such a large unsolved problem that the that the the dangers are the risks are substantial to failure, but also uh, you know the upside is tremendous and something that honestly offers a more interesting journey to me. That's the criteria I optimize for: is uh, will it be a more interesting journey? And uh, you know, that was the basis for even sort of starting the process of thinking about it. And you know, in my mind, the real risk is looking back, you know, years later, uh, you know. Uh, 10, 20, 30 years later and thinking I could have done this and I didn't do it. That to me is a much greater risk than the risk of a business failure. Business failures come and go. You know, most of the people who have done well have had plenty of failures along the way. And I would say even with field class, even though we ultimately succeeded, there were many moments along the way where we we might not have succeeded. Uh, so that was really the, the basis, just uh, trying to tackle a very large problem of which I felt I knew something. So for the people that are listening to to get it, what ended up being the business model of Field Glass? How were you guys making money there? So, you know, at, at a very high level, uh, think of a large corporation as having two categories of talent, two categories of workers. There is a category called the called employees. And then there is a category called people who are not your employees. And that second category consists of contract workers, people from staffing firms, independent contractors, consultants, IT service providers, you know, all of that. And what was becoming clearer is that large, is that second group is getting bigger and bigger as companies, you know, talk about core competencies, more outsourcing, you know, uh, if it's not, something that we have to do, then we shouldn't do it. So that second group was just getting larger. And there was no way for the corporation to effectively manage that group. And, you know, you could see the evidence everywhere, the, 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 uh, the things like the bill rates for the same scale were being, you know, not properly understood. There were compliance issues taking place, you know, on and on. And so at that level, all, all I thought of was that that second group is going to need some sort of a procurement slash HR platform to manage it. And that really was the starting point. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So 
that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Building a company is not easy, but I guess uh, for you all, what was that turning, you know, moment, you know, where you realize you're into something here? You know, I, I think it took a little while uh, for that, but there was so much evidence that this was a real problem. And one of the things I did is I did a lot of interviews. So I laid out my thesis on a single page, you know, here's the problem, here's why there isn't a solution and you know here's my idea and so on and i did as many interviews as i could with people who who knew the space on the customer side and the thing is you know when you don't have a product we don't have anything to sell people don't mind talking to you because you're not you know you're not pitching them anything i'm like i don't have anything to pitch and people will give you the benefit of their thoughts and their ideas in those circumstances and it really helped me sort of refine what I had, and it did, it validated two things for me. One is that this conception, my conception of the problem is very real. This is an unsolved problem. And second, that if someone showed up with a platform, there was, they would be, uh, you know, uh, substantial revenues to be generated from solving this particular problem. So that's, that was my North Star. And it gave me the confidence to then go raise money and build out a team. And I'll tell you, you know, building out a team, it's an act of, it's an act of, you know, you have to be responsible before you ask uh, someone to quit their job and join you on this crazy journey because you don't know where it's headed. And the only thing you can offer them is the promise that you're solving a big enough problem, uh, you know, that it's worth doing. And that's, you know, that's what gave me confidence, but it still took, a number of years before the market really validated these solutions. And we're talking about the late 90s here. So, um... well, this would, have, this would have been effectively early 2000s. So, in fact, yeah. I was sitting with an unsigned term sheet the day the internet, you know, the early internet market crashed in 2000. It was March 20th of 2000, which actually happened to be my birthday and also the birthday of my chief technology officer who was my first hire so the two of us sitting sitting there with an unsigned term sheet so what 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 was like going through through that downturn uh in the market it was uh, it was difficult but we managed to get that round of funding done now we had to take terms at that stage that weren't you know the prettiest uh but we got the funding done and I learned two things. Uh, one is how to make money last as as much as you can because it is scarce. It was hard for us to raise the cash, and we found ways to make it last 
you know, uh, 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 we, we stretched it quite a bit. The second thing I learned is that the mar this, uh, when a downturn happens, it's only people who are really serious about building something that remain. All the dilettantes and the folks who, you know, just thought it would be a good idea, all of those people leave because it gets really hard. So there is some advantage to building a company in a downturn. No kidding. Now, you were talking about it, you know, getting the term sheet. How much capital did you guys raise prior to the private equity firm, you know, coming in? We had raised 38 million over the course of four rounds. And uh, yeah, so that was the, and that took uh, probably seven years over the course of seven years to raise that money. And then the private equity firm, which was Madison Dearborn Partners, came in in October of 2010. And we essentially did a recap of and bought out the existing investors and so on. So, uh, yeah, that's how long it took. And why, why did you go from VC to PE? You know, because that's an interesting transition there. And, and obviously a different way of, um, of dealing with an investor. Now, I am sure that, you know, people that are listening, they're probably more used to the VC. And uh, I think that that transition from VC to PE is quite interesting. So can you walk us through that? Yes, of course. You know, in some ways, we could have just stayed. We needn't have sold. The company was profitable at that stage. Uh, in fact, the final VC round that we raised, I think, was 10 or 11 million. And of that, we never spent more than you know one or two. So our bank balance at that stage never dropped after that round uh, less than, I think, nine, if memory serves me right. So we could have continued to build a business. But you know, at this point, there's the consideration that most of these venture funds have been in the business for a long time. And some of them are running to the end of the fund life. And so they were looking for liquidity. So I think in large measure, it was driven by uh, their need for liquidity, uh, as opposed to the business's need for additional funding. And I guess, you know, for you also, what has been a lesson, you know, learned? Because I know that uh, receiving that pressure of VCs that are looking for liquidity, you know, versus where you're at too and what are your interests and your passion, you know, sometimes, you know, there is some type of misalignment there. So how was that for you? You know, there's always, I would say in hindsight, I was lucky to get a good set of investors. Uh, that doesn't mean there wasn't disagreement. And, you know, the disagreements were often around uh, what are we spending the money on, how much we should raise. And you'd often get uh, conflicting, you know, inputs. There were, when things were going well, people would want you to spend more. But, you know, when times were tight, they'd want to pull back. But operationally, that becomes very difficult when you made commitments to people, et cetera. So, uh, I, I think one of the lessons for me is uh, is actually just to be more tempered with the spending. So my bias, you know, back in the early days, today I sit on a number of boards and so on, and the, the behaviors are quite different. So there's a lot more money available today. People are, you know, at least until this uh, relatively recent downturn, people are willing to put lots and lots of capital at work. My views were old-fashioned by today's standards. I think you should try to build a profitable business as quickly as you can. Um, and that would remain, you know, that would remain my position. Now, in that, in that sense, when the private equity comes in, you know, you guys structure this as a majority investment. So there was first the, new, the first tranche of money, 
you know, where, where you guys were selling that majority ownership. And then, you know, as it happens with these types of deals, you know, you retain certain amount of equity as well as the team members and so forth. And then, you know, you would do um, another transaction where everyone is, is really, you know, liquidating their position uh, in full. So can you walk us through, you know, how those structures or transactions, you know, were actually, how, how did they happen and, and what was the value? Well, the the deal with Madison Dearborn Partners was uh, uh, again going by memory approximately two hundred and twenty million, and uh, since we had only raised uh, you know thirty eight and still had a lot left, that was a it was a pretty good return for everyone concerned, especially the early investors. You know, given the vintage of the funds which were raised in the year two thousand, you know, this was a good return. So people were people were quite pleased. Uh, as far as our employees and management team was concerned, uh, we we took some chips off the table just because it had been a while. But uh, everybody at this point really believed in the firm and uh, you know, far exceeded whatever was required by the new private equity firm coming in. Uh, and so we kept our money in. Uh, and then, you know, things things actually became really good. So we started to, uh, I, you know, one statistic that'll be interesting is it took us approximately seven or eight years to close our, to close about 40 customers. And these were large firms, you know, Fortune 500 firms. It was pretty global already. Uh, but then when the recession hit, which I think was in 2008, in that one year, we closed 40 new deals. Wow. And it was the proverbial hockey stick. Uh, and all because in that recession, you know, in times of recession, companies start looking at cost-cutting tools instead of revenue-generating tools. And we were sitting there as a platform that could help a large company control costs on services spend. And so it's, all of a sudden, there was just this wave of adoption. And it just accelerated. So 40 deals that year, then I think we did 60 and then 80. And you know, then I think we did a hundred, over 100 new customers in a single year. And uh, for the private equity firm, this company was making its first bet in the world of software. They, they were more focused on industrials before. So it turned out to be very good. And then eventually we were acquired by SAP just you know, a little over three years after that transaction. And at this point, the firm was extremely profitable. You know, on the on the rule of fifty, we were seventy or seventy-five. So the firm was growing. You know, thirty-five percent a year had nearly forty percent EBITDA margins. So it was just, it was just a very good business at that stage. And I would just say, as an aside, the if there is such a thing as a work of art in the world of business, it would be a great business model that can stand up and essentially become, uh, you know, highly profitable. So, so what were the, what were the terms of this transaction then, you know, the second time around with SAP? It was a, approximately a billion dollars. So it was one of the first uh, tech unicorn exits in the Midwest of a privately backed firm. Jay, a billion is a lot of uh, zeros, you know, any, what was, you know, some, yeah, spill the beans here. What were some of the things that you did, you know, obviously, you know, after this transaction that uh, that you couldn't do before? To be, to be honest, this is going to sound a bit syrupy, but the, one of my first acts was to, to 
buying a home for my for my parents. Wow, that's amazing. To live in, in Bombay and a place that I could you know visit. So that was really sort of the only substantial purchase. I don't you know I don't really like to own that many things. Uh, so I might have bought a new pair of uh, new set of squash rackets and some new squash shoes, but that's really amazing. nothing. I'm sure they were they were very good shoes and very good racket. Now in your case, you know, obviously an amazing chapter here that uh, that you were, you know, closing in, you know, after the acquisition with with SAP. What happened next for you? You know, you've been now, you know, for the for the past few years, you know, really, you know, getting involved with boards, you know, making investments. You know, what 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 has been this next chapter for you? So, you know, one of the things uh, that I learned is when you are going to leave a journey that has been that intense and that long, you know, nearly fifteen years from start to finish, you have to prepare the landing strip so that you don't end up with you know nothing to do. So that was good advice. And the way I started thinking about it, so I stayed with SAP for a year and a half. This is a marvelous firm, just you know, great experience. Everybody bleeds blue there, you know, shows up for conference calls, you know, three minutes early, whereas at field class it was always three minutes late. So that was a reset. But I decided to think about life as a portfolio as opposed to a job. And I didn't want to go back into, you know, one more anthill where your entire world is consumed by just what happens inside that one anthill. And that's what a startup is. You are 24 by seven in one little thing. So I decided to think of it as a portfolio. So rather than you know, allocating dollars, it's a question of allocating your remaining, you know, hours, you know, so to say hours and weeks, you know, and months of your life. Uh, and, uh, so I broke it down into, I, I think what I'm good at is I can, I can see how problems or so solving problems can be translated into businesses, you know, which is the core act of entrepreneurship. So I love working with entrepreneurs. So I invest in a lot of them. I, I have dozens of such relationships, you know, and some will fail and others will hopefully succeed, but it allows me to, to be involved in the act of business creation without being that person getting on that, you know, 6 a.m. Southwest flight out of Midway. Uh, so there's that set of activities. I have a great deal of sort of personal learning interests. I've been a mentor for Duality, which is the country's probably only quantum computing accelerator. Uh, Illinois has uh, become a bit of a hotbed for quantum computing because two of the NSF grants came to Chicago to Argonne and Fermilabs and there's University of Chicago. So it's been really a good sort of a learning experience, uh, uh, you know, think, uh, thinking about that. Uh, and then I'm involved in a number of funds. I chair one of the industry roundtables for Madison Dearborn Partners, and that involves sitting on some boards there. I've been a trustee with the Field Museum of Natural History for probably 12 years now, and I like going into the field. Uh, with the scientists. So we've made trips into Madagascar. I'm going again into Guyana, into Peru, uh, Africa. So that's what my life is now. So you, you've experienced now the board from two sides, you know, the table, you know, from the side of being the operator, being the founder, being the one that is executing. Now from the side of being someone that comes, you know, provides a strategic guidance, you know, shares your opinion, you know, on on, on how to handle certain problems. So what are your thoughts on effective board dynamics? What does that look like? You know, that's a good, that's a good question. I would say the boards that I've enjoyed the most 
is where the board remembers that it is not working inside the firm. It's not working inside the company. It's working on the company. And a great relationship is where the CEO you know, sits on the boundary of those two and is spending their whole day working inside, you know, selling, talking to customers, you know, handling problems, building product, that sort of thing. And when they bring it to the board, they are presenting a picture that is a dashboard of the daily activities that are going on there. And then the board's job is to help bring what they know of the outside world and different experiences you know, to the table. When that happens well in a, in a trusting way, then you have excellent board dynamics. And I felt like I had that in my final stint with Madison Dearborn, where uh, I will completely credit them with uh, finding the right time to exit the business in its final sale, because they started to pick up signals in the market that I would have never seen, you know, because we were heads down on building our business. So uh, it is that, uh, the, my second point would be, the board has to be a combination of, uh, of uh, sponsors, so investors, as well as operators. Uh, and then you can have a healthy discussion that factors in both. I think if it's only financial sponsors, then you'll get uh, a board that is probably going to be a little bit difficult for the CEO. So, yeah, so those would be the few. Now, there's probably a lot of people that are listening, you know, Jay right now and, and that are wondering, you know, hey, how can I get in touch with Jay? You know, so what would be the best way for them to reach out and say hi? They could probably drop me an email, uh, and that would be at jrney123 at yahoo.com. Amazing. Well, hey, Jay, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Alejandro. It's been a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.